Friends, the book of Jonah is pretty simple. It's a brief story. It goes something like this. It begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah the prophet. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach good news to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and the Assyrians were in some ways God's enemies. They were a threat to Israel. And Jonah didn't want to do it. So he said no, and he left. And he booked passage on a ship going in the exact opposite direction. But God sent a storm on the sea where that ship was. And the ship was just about to break up, and Jonah decided that he would have himself thrown overboard. Because Jonah believed that because he had disobeyed God, that God was punishing him, that God wanted to hurt him. But that was not God's posture towards Jonah. And my dear friends, that is never God's posture towards you and I when we disobey God or run from God. God's intention for us is that he would save us. And that's what God does for Jonah. He sends an unlikely rescue vessel. It's a big fish. Swallows Jonah up and he's there for three days and three nights. And it's in that fish at the bottom of the sea. It's the first time that Jonah prays in the entire book of Jonah. Because sometimes it's not until you're at the very bottom or you're in the dark that you'll finally call out to the one who will save you. And that's what Jonah does. And after those three days and three nights, he is spat out on dry ground by the fish. And that's where we find him in chapter 3. We're going to look now beginning at chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd want you to look in the book of Jonah beginning at chapter 3. But if you didn't bring a Bible, it'll be right behind behind me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
There's so much in these verses that can teach us and lead us and help us. But before we do that, I want us to consider for a moment, I'd like you to consider for a moment how unlikely it is and how wonderful it is that we even have a third and fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. I want you to consider how unlikely it is and how wonderful it is and what good news it is that Jonah's story doesn't end at the end of chapter two, that his story continues on, that his life continues on, because you could imagine that it might have been different, that it might have gone something like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh, but he said no, and he got on a ship to go in the opposite direction. So God sent a storm, and the ship was nearly about to break up, and Jonah had himself thrown overboard, and God sent a fish to swallow up Jonah, and he died. The end. It might have been like that. It could have been like that. It could have been the case that it was like this. Jonah messed up and God struck him down. But instead we have a third chapter and a fourth chapter of Jonah. They're good chapters. And they give us such good news. And some of the best news in either of these chapters comes at the very beginning of chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That is an essential and beautiful part of the good news of Jesus. Just those three words, the second time. That means, dear ones, that our God is a God of second chances. That means that our God, when you run from him or ignore him, or turn away from him, or disobey him, that he doesn't respond with rejection, but with grace. Could somebody here say, the second time? The second time. He's a God of second chances. The book of James says, I'm sorry, not James, Second Timothy says, that if we are faithless, he is still faithful, because he cannot deny himself. Our God is a God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and it's a miracle that he is. You know, some people ask about the book of Jonah. Did this really happen? Could somebody really be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? Could that really happen? Is that real? But the real miracle in the book of Jonah is not that he survives three days and a fish. It's that God doesn't give up on him. And that is good news for all of us. I was talking, Christian talked about seeing somebody in the cafe. The cafe is a place where some beautiful things happen. I was talking with somebody in the cafe just last week. We were talking about the book of Jonah. We were talking about Jonah's life. And then we started talking about this person's life. She said to me, you would not believe what I've been through. You would not believe what dark places I've been in, what dangerous places. I shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't be alive. But God never gave up on me. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you have run from God and you've realized that God has run after you the whole way. Some of you have failed God in one way or another, but you know that God has never failed you. Some of you have made your way into the valley of the shadow of death and you've looked alongside you and realized that Jesus is right with you in the valley of the shadow of death. For some of you, it's really dramatic. And for some of you, it's not quite so dramatic. Some of you, it's just that you never really thought about God much and you never really contemplated who Jesus was. But then you discovered what Isaiah 49 says, even though maybe you haven't given much thought to Jesus, that he has your name engraved on his palms. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. He is a God of second chances. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And that's not something that you and I usually would do. That's not the way that you and I usually think about our relationships. We say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm gonna cut you off. But God does not do that. He is a God of second chances. And the fact that God is different than us, that he isn't like us, that's one of the things that I wanna look at today. It's gonna be the theme of what we're gonna address. That there's so much in God that is contrary to the way we would think about who God is. So much about him that would be different than the way that we are. A lot of times atheists will say, you know, God's just a projection. God is a projection of our hopes and our wishes and our desires, but that's not true. The more that you get to know the God of the Bible, you realize he's not like you at all. This is what Isaiah says about it. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. His ways are not our ways. And we should be very grateful for that. We should be grateful that there's so much in God that is different than we would expect him to be. And I wanna look at three different aspects of who God is that's different for how many of us would want God to be. And those three things are, here are three points today. The necessity of judgment, the triumph of mercy, and the power of an obedient servant. The necessity of judgment, the triumph of mercy, and the power of an obedient servant. Let's look at the first one first. It's the necessity of judgment. The first thing that we see in this book, you see it in the very beginning in chapter one, you see it here too. God is going to judge Nineveh. God has looked at the ways that the people of Nineveh have lived, how they've treated one another, how they've turned away from him, how they just haven't uh, followed the ways of love and goodness and truth and justice that not only is written in God's law, but it's written on all of our hearts. They've not done that. So he says, I won't let this stand. And I'm going to bring judgment there. And if they don't turn, if they don't change, I'm gonna overthrow the city. Now, some of us, we read this, we hear this, it's like, yep, that's why I just read the New Testament. I don't like all this fire and brimstone and judgment and God's gonna overthrow a city. We think, no. I want to believe in a God of love. I want to believe in a God that accepts all people, no matter where they're at. I want to believe in a God who is tolerant of people, even if they're different. There's something in us that's like that, and that makes sense. It makes sense to me, at least. There's something about judgment that I don't quite accept or want to take in. But let's think about this together. Let's think for a moment. Let's think about the story of Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, capital city of Assyria. And as I said before, the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. And the Assyrians were brutal. The Assyrians were extremely violent. We know that in part from what the Bible says about them. And that's good testimony, but that's not the only place where we learn about the Assyrians. We learn about the Assyrians also from the Assyrians. If you go to the British Museum today, you can find the history of the kings of Nineveh, and some of that history is in etchings that were done in stone, a document of how the kings went about their business. And these documents are pictures, visual pictures of the ways that the kings of Nineveh dealt with their enemies. And they tortured and killed their enemies. They exerted a reign of violence that is breathtaking. Things that are on these etchings, I wouldn't even want to describe from up here. Their society in some ways was shot through with blood. That's what the prophet Nahum said, that they were a people of blood. 
And so then we come to an impasse because if that's true, if there is a culture, if there is a city, if there is a world that is full of violence, if it's a world that's contrary to God's beauty and truth, it brings us to an impasse. And that impasse is this. On the one hand, we say, we don't want to have a God of judgment. We only like a God of love. I like a God of love. I don't want a God who's judgmental. I want a God who's tolerant. I want a God who's merciful. But then on the other hand, we think, well, wait, I don't want to have a God also who's not good or true. And you can't be good if you tolerate wickedness. You can't be good if you look at something and you say, that's, that's okay. I'm not going to make any difference. I'm not going to distinguish between those two things. We need a God of judgment. We need judgment in our lives in order for the good and the true and the beautiful to exist. Let me try to illustrate this in a smaller way. Think about parenting. Think about the last time you were at the park. I bet this happened one time or another for you. You're at the park and you see some little kids. Your kid is out there. The person you look after, and all the kids are running around, and one of the kids is running around just wreaking havoc, stealing toys, bopping other kids in the shoulder, being mean, hurting them, not doing anything right, and nobody is saying anything. You look at the caregiver and says, hey, stop that, Johnny, turns back, doesn't do anything. That is not good for those other kids, and that is not good for that child either. There's no judgment. There's no distinction between what's good and bad. It's not only for little kids, it's for older kids too. I remember when I was in high school, I kind of envied the kids whose parents were checked out. I had some friends and their parents just weren't around very much and they traveled a lot and that's where all the parties were. And I thought, that's so awesome. They can do whatever they want. You know, the book of Romans says that one of the worst things that could ever happen to you in your life is that you can do whatever you want. You need judgment. You need love. And we sort of think, well, there's either love or there's judgment. But no, no. For many of us, we want to keep those things very far apart. We think that they're far apart. But judgment and love are two sides of the same coin. Anytime that you have love, you have anger. Because if you love somebody, you want them to live in love and in justice and in truth. And if they're going off into a way that's going to hurt them or other people, you have to say no. Think about those two illustrations I just gave. If there's a child running around in the playground, taking everybody's toys, bopping everybody, it's not going to be love unless the parent stands up and says, no, stop. You, you can't do that. No, I'm not going to let you do that. The child's not going to like that. The child's going to scream and cry. That's not fair. But that's love because it's judgment. It's the same way for an older child. If a child is making their way into the dark, making their way into danger, then the parent's gonna say, no, I'm not gonna let you do that. And that child's not gonna like it. It's going to feel like anger. It's gonna feel like wrong. But you and I need a God of judgment. We need a God who's going to judge. Think about this. The Bible says that everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that you'll be due according to what you've done in the body, whether good or bad. And you think that's an ominous thing to think about. And I'll tell you, friends, it is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But imagine standing before the judgment seat of God. Your, your life ends and you stand before God and you say, there are some things that I did that I regret. They were wrong. And if God said, I don't care. Well, wait, there were some people that hurt me and it was not right. It doesn't matter. I don't care. Wait, what? 
No, no, no. I, I, I really hurt some people. It doesn't matter. That was all a game. It was all play. It didn't matter. No, no, no. Friends, we need a God who is going to, in his love, judge us and bring us into conformity with his peace and his love. And this is what we're seeing here. We see the necessity of judgment. We need a God whose love extends so far that it will not let us run into the dark, that it will not, like the book of Romans say, taking everything off, letting somebody do whatever that they want. That's the first thing, is the necessity of judgment. And now, here comes the second one. This is the triumph of mercy. God's judgment is real. God's judgment in this story, where he's going to bring a city into conformity with his love, it's necessary. But just as much as that, you see in the story, and you see throughout the Bible, the triumph of God's mercy, that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And what that means is that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, that God always wants to show his love and grace and compassion to you, no matter where you're at. And that God's mercy and grace is going to be poured out and it's even going to overcome God's judgment. What you see in this passage, it's all over this place. It's all over the place. You look in every single book of the Bible. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament with God's judgment and his fire and brimstone. Look at this. Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. I'm sure that Jonah, as he was leaving on that ship, thought, God's going to leave me and I'm going to leave God. But he won't do it. It says it right here. He's thinking, God is going to destroy me. I'm going to go into the ocean. He's going to eat me up. No, God is not going to forget the covenant that he has with Jonah or his people because mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not going to leave us just in a place of his anger, but he's always wanting to pull us back into his grace and love. That's the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament, James chapter two. Mercy triumphs over judgment that he's always aching to pull you into his grace and not leave you in judgment. This is from the book of Romans. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, I think some of us have a ledger in our mind, a ledger for the people around us and a ledger for ourselves. And we say, all right, I did a few sins, uh, but I don't think that they were that bad. They were just sort of bad. And then, so grace is going to equal that out, and it's going to take care of those sins. Uh-oh, sometimes people sin, and they get up to here. Oof. Well, God's grace probably covers that. But if somebody, I or somebody around me, does some really bad sins, and it's really bad, then it gets up here. Oh, and that building crushes over onto God's forgiveness. But that's exactly the opposite of what this says. Where sin increases, grace increases more. Where sin increases, mercy triumphs even more so that you and I can never get far enough away from God's grace, that it doesn't cover over anything and everything that would separate us from his love. Let's, I could go through, we could go through every book of the Bible and see again and again and again that mercy triumphs over grace. But let's look at what happened when Jonah arrives in Nineveh. He preaches a very half-hearted sermon. You know, I'm a preacher. I want preachers to look good. Jonah makes preachers look bad in this book. We'll get to this in a second. But somehow, his lame, half-hearted message makes it so that everybody turns and receives God's mercy. Somehow, God's mercy comes and not only is poured out them, but even draws people's heart out so that they're now turning towards God. The lowest and the poorest and the people that are in margin society and the people that are at the highest, they all put on sackcloth. It's this rough 
kind of fabric that's supposed to represent uh, repentance. They even put it on the animals, which is sort of a comic way of saying that even animals obey God better than Jonah does. And what this is showing us is that, as one theologian has put it, that God has a hair-trigger compassion. You just give him any chance to be gracious. You just give the slightest nod to him, and he is going to wash you over with his mercy and his grace. Because the people of Nineveh, what have they really done? I mean, what have they really done to change? They just put a few ashes on their face. They call out to God a little bit. They're not really doing all that much. They haven't shown any proof that as a society they're going to change. In fact, you look at the rest of the Bible, you look at the book of Nahum, they don't really change very much at all, but God pours out his grace and his mercy anyway. They fast for a bit. They skip lunch. They call out to God, and God pours mercy out on them. They don't have their theology right either. They don't use God's covenant name. If you look at the rest of the book of Jonah, God, or Jonah uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. If you look in your English translations, usually it's represented by the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D. Jonah uses the word Yahweh, Lord. If you look at the rest of the Bible, God's people always use the word Lord. It means they've got their theology right. That's not what the people of Nineveh use. They just use the generic word God. They call out to God, and God just uses any excuse at all, his hair-trigger compassion. He just pours his mercy out on them. They've just done a little bit. They've just done a little bit sort of like the prodigal son. Do you know the story of the prodigal son? He looks, the prodigal son looks a lot like the people of Nineveh, really. He comes back, he's all dirty, he's all ripped up a little bit, and he's calling out to that father of his in ways that don't make a lot of sense. I'll make it up to you, I'll work for you, will you take me back? And before he can get any of those absurd excuses out of his mouth, the father comes running out of the house, sweeps him up, puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and throws a party for him that's only fit for somebody that's done the right thing every day. God's mercy always triumphs over his judgment. And here's the place where I would say, you know, some people don't like a God of judgment. Say, I don't believe in a God of judgment. But then there are others of us that think, oof, you're talking about mercy an awful lot you might want to tone that down a little bit because then people might think that they don't have to get themselves together, that they don't have to believe the right things. Now, we can talk about mercy. That's fine, but don't talk about it too much because if you talk about it too much, then people won't think that they have to get their things all together and start showing up in church and join the right things and volunteer in the cafe and get themselves together because that's what's really necessary here. You have to prove that you've changed. You have to prove that you get it. But be careful if you think that renaissance. Be careful because that's exactly what Jonah is struggling with here. He's really struggling. Look what he says. This is, it's really breathtaking what he says. He sees this great repentance and this is what he says about it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know what he's saying? I knew it. I knew you wanted to love everybody. I knew you were a softy. I knew you were going to fold 
You know, in chapter four, Jonah goes out to the outside of the city and gets a folding chair and an umbrella and gets a cold drink and he's out there. You know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for God to smoke him. He's waiting for God to throw down thunderbolts. And even here right now, he's saying, I can't believe you did this. You made me come all the way here and talk to a bunch of people who do not get it. And you can tell they're not ever gonna really get it. And you can tell they're not calling you. Their theology stinks. It's really terrible. They believe all the wrong things and you're still forgiving them. And this is a caution to us. It's especially a caution to people who've been in the church for a long time. Because I said before that the Ninevites are a little bit like the prodigal son. Well, when you and I fail to give God the ability to give all that graciousness, we're a little bit like the elder brother. Do you remember the elder brother? He comes running in from the field. What's this I hear? A party for this guy? Dad, you're crazy. Do you know where he's been? He's been off in the far country. He's been spending your fortune that he got because he wished you were dead. He's been spending your fortune. And now look at him. He's a mess. He's all bedraggled and he's got dust all over him and he's all broken down and you're throwing him a party. That son of yours, it's not fair. If you've been in the church a long time, that might go through your head, which has lead us to a question. It should lead us to a question for us as a church, Renaissance, and it should lead us to a question for all of us, which is, is there something in us that wants to march through God's wide gates of grace and then kind of pull the door shut behind us? Is there something in us that wants mercy and love for undeserving sinners and then when it comes to other people that we hedge our bets a little bit? Is there something in us that wants to fail, that fails to believe that God's abundant mercy is for everyone and that somehow what really the good news is, people begin to believe the right things and do the right things and say the right things. That's the good news is when people really get it and they pull themselves together. The one way you can answer the question as to the path you're going to walk in that is this. Are you in need of a Savior where mercy triumphs over judgment? Are you in need of a Savior like that? Are you in need of a Savior who died for you while you were yet a sinner? Are you in need of a Savior who will persist with you even then when you take one step up and two steps back? If it's true that that's what you need, if you need a savior who will lay down his life for you and love you and persist with you, even when you fail, even when you fall, if that's true, then you should love other people with that same love. That you should proclaim the good news of a savior who is that good, that his mercy triumphs that much over judgment. Don't wait for people to get it right. Don't wait for people at all. You should be like that father, throw them a party that our doors should be wide open, not closed off and saying, do you get it yet? All right, we'll crack it, we'll let you in. That our doors should be wide open. So that's the second thing. It's the mercy triumph over judgment. Here's the last one. It's the power of an obedient servant. Now, the obedient servant in question is Jonah. I'm using the word obedient very loosely here because Jonah is not very obedient. We know that he doesn't even want to be there. Did you ever sign up for volunteering at church and then you remembered that you were supposed to be there and then you went, but you didn't really want to be there? (laughs) Oh, there's one person that tells the truth in this whole room. You sign up, you say, oh, I don't want to go. 
Jonah signed up for a prophet. He went to divinity school and he signed up and he wanted to be a prophet. And then he got word that he was supposed to go to Assyria. He's like, no way, I'm not going to Assyria. And he has a terrible time of it, but finally he goes, but it's really half-hearted. He doesn't really want to be there. And part of the ways you can know he doesn't even really want to be there at this point. Take a look at uh, verse three and four. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. That's how you say it. If you're, that's the Hebrew. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A couple of things here. First is the city is three days journey across. He only goes in one day's journey. Now, that might be because everybody began to repent immediately. We don't know. But the text makes a big deal of the fact that he doesn't go all the way in. It's as if he was called to New York City and God said, go into all five boroughs and proclaim the good news. He just gets to Times Square and he's like, this is it. I'm not going any farther. (laughs) Staten Island, do the best you can. Bronx, I'm not going up there. No. Queens, never. Uh, (laughs) He just stops short. And the second thing is, his sermon is not terribly inspired. I don't think he worked very hard on it. It says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. There's no illustrations. There's no references to any scholars or anything at all. Can you imagine if a Christian did that? Did he just came here one day and he's like, all right, new sermon series called Believe in Jesus. Uh, here's the first one. Believe in Jesus, everybody. Let us pray. but look this shows God's power it shows God's generosity it shows God's sense of humor he takes this half-hearted sermon from a quarter-hearted servant and he says I'm going to do great things with it look and the people of Nineveh believed God (laughs) they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them I bet you there was never a preacher who was less happy about revival in his church They all receive the good news and put their faith in God and he's not happy about it. And it's done with almost no effort from him. He just shows up. He doesn't have any love for them. He has very little faith. He doesn't have very much knowledge about what he's doing, which shows us that you can be used by God if you just show up. It's the power of an obedient servant. Just to show up, you don't need a lot of knowledge. You don't need a lot of heart. You don't need a lot of love. God will supply everything that you need. That each one of you right now is being called to serve in this community and in your wider community and in your families and among your friends. You're being called to serve just in the same way that Jonah is in different aspects of your life. It might be things that you say. It might be things that you do. It might be financially. It might be with your home, opening it up. I don't know what it is but you're being called to do that. And if you do not do it, if you won't show up, then what will happen is that the people around you will suffer for it. It doesn't mean that God's kingdom won't come. It doesn't mean that God won't still be at work. He will. But Jonah is showing us here that if you even just give a little bit, then God will do great things with it. God will take it. And if you do do it, that means that the people around you can be saved and healed and change that God will use even the little bit that you bring to do powerful, amazing things. There was a missionary in China in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and his name was John Bechtel. 
And at some point, he and several of his, uh, the people he worked with in missions were expelled from mainland, mainland China and they had to go to Hong Kong. And when he got to Hong Kong, he just continued to be a missionary, to proclaim good news to people there, to try to set up things that would be helpful and beneficial and be a part of the advance of God's kingdom. And one of the ideas that came to John Bechtel was that he would open up a camp, a camp that the people and the children of Hong Kong could go to, that they might experience God's beauty in nature and also that they could hear the good news of Jesus. And so finally, he found a place where he could open this camp. It was perfect. It was an abandoned school. And it had dormitories, it had playing fields, it has a gymnasium, it had everything that was necessary for the vision of this camp that John Bechtel had. When he found it, he had a friend who was an American businessman, and alongside him, this American businessman said, that is an amazing vision, and I want to do all I can to support it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to the United States Give me three months and I'll raise all the money that's necessary for you to buy this camp. Three months elapsed and John Bechtel got a letter in the mail and he opened it up and inside was a letter and also another envelope, another letter. He read the first letter, he opened it up and it said, Dear Mr. Bechtel, fundraising for your camp has not gone as well as I would have hoped. In fact, there's only been one person who has agreed to make a donation to your camp. She's a 12-year-old girl. Her letter is enclosed. So he took the second envelope out and he opened it up and it said, Dear Mr. Bechtel, I would like to give you some money for the purchase of your camp. Please use the enclosed money for the purchase of the facility for your camp. It's from my spending money. Sincerely, Belinda Holmes. And inside that envelope was one $1 bill. John Bechtel was furious. He was angry. He thought that the man was sort of making fun of him. He was so insulted and so hurt to think about the vision of this camp uh, failing. His wife was with him when he was reading the letter. His wife said, well, you should do what that little girl said. He said, what? He said, you should go and use the money that she gave you for the purchase of the camp. So he took the envelope and he brought it to the trustees of the owners of the school, the place that owned the school originally. He gave them the letter and he gave them the dollar bill. And they thought on it for a while and they were so moved by what that little girl wrote that they sold him the camp for $1. 20 years later, John Bechtel was telling this very same story in a church in the United States. He told, you the story, told them the story that I just told you. At the end, after everything was done, people were coming up to begin to talk to him. A 35-year-old woman came up to him, and she said, Mr. Bechtel, my name is Belinda Holmes. It was the first time that she got to hear about the work of that camp. At that time, it had been around for about 25 or 30 years. It's still around now. Soon Do Camp, which means Preach the Gospel Camp, has been around outside of Hong Kong just under 50 years. It's handled almost a million children, and just over 100,000 children have placed their faith in Jesus for the first time because of the ministry of that camp. Now, I want you to be very careful with this illustration. I want you to understand it clearly. The point of this illustration is not that you only have to give $1. <laughs> 
when you think about giving to the ministries and the churches that you are involved with. For some of you, giving $1 will be generous and will be sacrificial, and that's what you should do. Some of the rest of you maybe should give a little bit more than that. The point of the illustration, though, is that God can take very small things, very small bits of your effort, very small amounts of your money, and do very great things with it. What happens here in Nineveh? It says that there are hundreds of thousands of people that receive God's mercy and grace, and we think, well, gosh, that's sort of miraculous. That's amazing. I'd love to see something that big happen. Well, today, in the hearing of my voice, the first service, the second service, the people online, there are probably about 1,000 people that will hear this message. And think about if just all of those 1,000 people are people that are willing to be an obedient servant and take out the small bit that you have into the family that you have and the work that you have and the couple of people that you are able to bless because of God's power, the couple of people that you're able to help, the couple of people that hear for the first time that the Lord Jesus Christ is a God who will lay down his life for his people and that he has overcome death and sin and that by being united to him, you can come into a relationship with God. That by being united to him, you can be healed and helped and used in this world. We can do even greater things than what happens in Nineveh simply because God's graciousness and goodness and power. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Change our hearts and our minds so that we might follow after you. Do that for those of us who have known you and followed you for a very long time. Help us to know that mercy triumphs over grace, or mercy triumphs over judgment. And help those of us maybe who are hearing it for the first time, the graciousness of Jesus. Help each one of us by your Holy Spirit to have faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.